0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch.
1: Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We have made it to Friday in this crazy week on the Three Martini Lunch. Glad you've been with us for the journey and are with us today. Your stool is ready. We're brought to you today by the Jordan Harbinger Show. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Good, bad, crazy martinis today, Jim. And if our good news can't be great news for conservatives it's at least bad news for Democrats. And when Democrats don't do well at the polls in some races, like at the House level, unfortunately, they'll still have the majority in the US House of Representatives, but it's going to be smaller. And with some of the outstanding races, it could actually be uh, quite small. But uh, whenever there's uh, a disappointing election, even if you still cling to the majority, there's always the Monday morning quarterbacking. And that is where The Democrats in the House are right now. Yesterday, there was a conference call of House Democrats. Some of them apparently leaked out the contents of the meeting to uh, the media. And let's just say there's a food fight a-brewing in the Democratic caucus. Abigail Spanberger uh, represents Virginia's 7th District. She eked out a win, it appears, over Nick Freitas there. Uh, and, uh, she is not happy that some of her fellow Democrats aren't coming back and she's blaming the far left rhetoric and policy ideas of, uh, she didn't specifically name the squad as far as I know, but that's certainly, I think where she was heading with this Uh, on the democratic caucus call. Spanberger said, we lost races. We shouldn't have lost defund police almost cost me my race because of an attack ad. Don't say socialism ever again need to get back to basics, and in parentheses, this reporter says, is yelling. And so uh, other folks are saying, well, you should not only not say socialism, you should probably not embrace socialism anymore. Not to stand by to that AOC who went on this whole thread about uh, House Democrats didn't lose because of ideology, they lost because their digital campaign efforts weren't up to the standards that they needed to be. And then part of the thread led to this beauty, Jim, so the whole progressivism is bad argument just doesn't have any compelling evidence that I've seen when it comes to defund and socialism attacks. People need to realize these are racial resentment attacks. You're not going to make that go away. You can make it less effective. So Jim, it's always fun when it's intra-party food fights that uh, have some members accusing others of being racist for wanting to have a less radical agenda. Good times, Democrats. Oh,
0: Greg, I just want to take the New York Times needle and inject that Cromford's call directly into my veins. It is it is just a, I want to savor every moment of it. You left out the four-letter words, which I think really add a lot of flavor to the anger between these different factions that has Democrats. I think between the two, uh, Abigail Spanberger has the much better argument. I, a couple of people are like saying, well, we just shouldn't use socialism as a word. Democrats are every bit as socialist. Well, may very well be, but you know, there's there's a, Shortly after the first two years of the Obama administration, they kept saying, stimulus, 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 stimulus work, green shoots, look at it, we're, you know, uh, we're seeing spring, recovery spring. And of course, you know, it really didn't take off the way the Democrats expected. Obama even kind of said, yeah, the shovel-ready jobs turned out to not be all that shovel-ready. So that you haven't seen Democrats use the word stimulus since that fight, right? Now, they're still going to, look, the Democrats are always going to be the party of bigger government. They're always going to be the party of higher spending, higher taxes. They're always going to be the party of government workers and of generally, you know, embracing the federal bureaucracy instead of wanting to cut it down. That having been said, every time part of their worldview crumbles, not only do I dance a jig, I think it's actually good for us. And if Democrats realize, wow, if we go around saying we're socialists, we're going to lose South Florida. We're going to lose not just Cuban Americans, but also Venezuelan Americans, Nicaraguan Americans, Colombian Americans, because all of these voters have heard from their parents and their grandparents what life was like under socialism. That's good. I, I think it's, you know, if, I, so if you give, and people are like, well, if Democrats stop calling themselves socialists, then Republicans will have a tough time winning races. Greg, I don't know about you, I'd take that if you could put socialism back into the grave and make it politically unacceptable anymore. Like that, that, I'm fine with that trade. My goal in life is not really just to move the Republicans to the right, further to the right. My goal in life really is to move the Democrats further to the right. Because if you do that, you are moving the Overton window, this, this idea of what ideas are acceptable and what ideas are considered rational and normal and good ideas in American politics. And the Overton window moved really far to the left for a long time. Now all of a sudden, like the Overton window slammed down on their fingernails. (laughs) Like like the spring broke and it came down and all of a sudden maybe these ideas aren't political winners. So I, you know, part of me is like, go Abigail Spanberger, go. The fact that AOC is being rebuked and she's kind of lashing back, it's kind of delightful to see in part because you're going to see, I think, more Democrats asking themselves, yeah, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did indeed win a surprise primary fight against a longtime incumbent who was dreaming of being Speaker of the House someday. And what she done, yeah, but she, if this was in a deep, deep blue district. What the heck does Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez know about winning in Florida? Nothing. She got into a fight with Claire McCaskill in Missouri, who was on MSNBC, and offering the similar message of, uh, we've gotten out of touch with too many people. We seem like we're too obsessed with boutique issues that only uh, appeal to this very uh, thin slice of the liberal elite. We've uh, you know, lost touch with middle America. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just ripped into her. And somebody else made the observation. Claire McCaskill won something like 9 of 11 or like 11 of the 13 times she ran for office in Missouri. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has won one primary, one general. I guess she won the primary this time. I didn't really hear too much about it. And she's won two general in a deep, deep blue New York City district. So who do you think knows more about how to win votes in Missouri? Who do you think knows how to win more votes in middle America? Why why would anybody listen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when it comes to how Democrats should run in parts of the country that are anything other than a deep blue corner of New York City?
1: But, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this fight is. And, and Greg, all I can say is pass the popcorn. (laughs) I love popcorn. Yeah, Alyssa Slotkin, who had a tough race in Michigan, unfortunately got reelected, was also tweeting out, you know, we've got to understand each other better. I have neighbors who disagree with me. I have in-laws who disagree with me. We've got to be able to talk to each other, which sounds good. But Jim, when your moderates get beat, who does that leave in the caucus? It leaves the people who are more radically to the left. And if you still have Nancy Pelosi or someone who's still a pretty staunch liberal as speaker— I think it's still going to be Pelosi just because she's, uh, you know, she knows where all the bodies are buried, but we'll see. It might not be. Uh, And Joe Biden, if Joe Biden becomes president, uh, they are going to be largely on the same page. And I'm not thoroughly convinced it's going to be a Republican Senate, but let's just say it is. Is it going to be an outreach to the Senate to find common ground? Or is it going to be Biden plus the House uh, passing stuff and then uh, blaming everything on Mitch McConnell that doesn't get done? I think it's going to be option B. It certainly could be, Greg. I,
0: I, right now, I'm feeling a little more optimistic, in part because, you know, if, if you're Joe Biden, and you're still mentally all there, you look at these results, and the good news is, look, you've probably, you know, at, at this hour, it looks like you've won the presidency of the United States, and you're taking over a country that's, um, you know, we had some good economic news this morning, but is still not fully recovered from the uh, full economic effects of the pandemic. You still have a pandemic going on. Operation Warp Speed thinks we get a vaccine by spring, but you know, that's, that's still something, a big, big problem to work, to worry about. You know, there, there's still racial tensions, but you did not win a mandate for Green New Deal. You did not win a mandate for packing the court, making D- District of Columbia and Puerto Rico state, all that kind of stuff. Didn't, you didn't win a mandate for that. If you, if you won a mandate for that, you would have won with 400 electoral votes, right? You won, you know, just enough. Ironically, it may end up being the inverse of Trump's electoral college score from last time. And he's going to win, you know, Michigan by three points. He's going to win a bunch of these states that are close by two points. He didn't win a mention of a mandate. What he won is he he won a mandate to not be Donald Trump. So if you want to be a popular, you know, president, go out and be Donald Trump. Don't try to enact some crazy liberal agenda. And that means working with Mitch McConnell. And I don't know, Mitch McConnell doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would outright refuse to do a economic relief bill for the coronavirus. They had a lot of negotiations that didn't go anywhere this time. Biden can, you know, get them all into a room and say, all right, what can we all agree on? What are the parts of relief that we do, you know, we have a consensus on? They'll do a infrastructure bill, right? We're going to get stuff that, you know, it might be big spending for us. which is not what we love, but I'll take, you know, big spending over packing the court. You know, budget bills, we can, you know, fight over till the cows come home. This, this The idea of let's completely overturn our entire constitutional order, that's off the table. And I think deep down, Biden wants to get stuff done. And Biden and McConnell are old Senate guys. I, I know these two guys don't seem like the type who hate each other's guts. And I don't know if it's going to be Reagan and Tip O'Neill, but I think they are the kind of guy, Republicans said Biden was the guy that they enjoyed uh, negotiating with the most because he basically wouldn't lecture them the way Obama would. So I'm I'm reasonably optimistic that we'll see, if not an era of good feelings, then a little bit less um, uh, partisan demolition derby than we saw the last few years. Well,
1: maybe I don't know though. I think the the left, that the far left, is going to be really loud every time the Democrats don't do what they want to do. And I think that's all well, they can be. But <laughs> you know. I think that's gonna I think that's gonna win them over. I think that's gonna push them in the direction that we don't want them to go. So we'll find out. Anyway, uh, as we try to think through all this, what we're seeing this week with election results and what might be to come, knowing how to think critically is very important, and that's where the Jordan Harbinger Show might be able to help us out a little bit. Apple named the program one of its best of 2018, and it's really aimed at making you a better, informed, more critical thinker so that you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Don't just listen to uh, cable news or social media or just two guys with a podcast necessarily. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Uh, Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of people's personalities. You won't find just one set of viewpoints on Jordan's show. The podcast covers a lot,
0: but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts
1: your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Jim, let's talk about recounts and legal challenges and what is actually needed to bring forth a potentially successful legal challenge. And we'll also go through a couple of uh, things that have been uh, floating around quite a bit on social media here. But Jim, your morning jolt today was largely uh, focused on the idea of, okay, uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of all the vote counting here. There are uh, emerging allegations of improprieties, some of them vague, some of them more specific. Uh, But basically, your your case here is, put up or shut up. If you've got something, bring it to a court and let the court decide whether it's something that uh, requires some of these ballots to be re-examined and, uh, and scrutinized further or whether it's time to move on. So uh, what we're seeing right now, of course, is a still a number of States uh, that are, are not called Pennsylvania and Georgia both ticked into the Biden column, which is why a lot of folks think it might ultimately be called today. Decision desk HQ already has uh, Arizona, North Carolina, And I guess Alaska is still outstanding here as well. Um, So, Jim, um, we'll get to the specifics in in just a moment. But uh, what do you need in terms of a credible challenge in court? And do you think that, uh, from what we've heard from the right so far, that they're close to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, so far we're seeing the Trump campaign make really sweeping statements in public. And then they go into a courtroom and their arguments are much more narrow, much more small scale, much more... um, Small consequence. By the way, you know, right before the election, Attorney General William Barr said uh, the Public Integrity Section of Washington D.C. District Election Offices and U.S. Attorneys' Offices, FBI officials, both at headquarters and Election Crime Coordinators, fifty-six field offices. Look, if you see an election crime, if you see somebody destroying ballots, if you see somebody manufacturing ballots, if you have any evidence that election fraud is going on, you should be contacting your local U.S. Attorney's Office or your local FBI office. Right, you can find them on the internet. They're not hiding. Um, you don't, so you, we're seeing a lot of people who are going onto social media. We're seeing people who are jumping onto cable news and screaming, the election's being stolen. The election's being stolen. Hey, look, don't tell us this. Go to courtroom, show it to a judge. That's where you can have a consequence. The rest of us out here are just sitting here. There's not much we can do. We can't stop them. And by the way, going down to vote counting places with guns is not the answer Apparently, there was some guy who drove up from Virginia who was planning on blowing up, I think it was the Philadelphia Convention Center or something. He was was planning some sort of attack, or at least that's what the indictment said. You know, getting angry. Look, we have a system to deal with all of this. And so far, the Trump administration, look, maybe they've got fantastic lawyers, but these guys are not winning and they're not making uh, terribly strong arguments. I won't go through all of them, but they've happened in Georgia, happened in Michigan, happened in Pennsylvania. They went to the courts and said, this is our, you know, we think this is um, uh, this is an example of fraud. And in every one of those cases, the judges have said, you haven't proved anything. This is hearsay. You know, go back and get some real evidence. And that's, I, I, you know, if this evidence is there, if this is this sweeping, ongoing election fraud that is stealing, it's, it's destroying votes for Trump, it is uh, creating votes for Biden, if they're manufacturing votes, then go to the courts and show them because that's the only thing that can, quote, either stop the count or, uh, uh, you know, change, you know, what what ballots are, are considered valid, which ones aren't. We have mechanisms for doing these sorts of things. Electoral College doesn't meet for a month. We have time to work through this. But, you know, if you're going to do this argument, you got to put up or shut up. You got to be able to generate some sort of evidence there. And all we're seeing is this, uh, a lot of raging on social media. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of fascinating to watch Donald Trump Jr. and Brad Parscale saying the total lack of action from virtually all the 2024 GOP hopefuls is pretty amazing. What authority does Nikki Haley have over any of this stuff? What, what, what authority does Tom Cotton have over how they're counting ballots? Enough? And stuff? oh, by the way, let's keep in mind, in North Carolina, this is a, uh, a state where it's being done by a bipartisan, it, it's not the, the state uh, Secretary of State who, who runs the elections. It's the North Carolina State Board of Elections. They have a three. They have five members, three to two uh, majority for Democrats, but the two Republicans have not seen anything, saying that they see anything hinky or suspicious in North Carolina, uh, in Georgia. There's a Republican Secretary of State. He went through all the procedures he's doing to ensure that the Fulton County vote is there. Now, Greg, I put this out. Uh, this whole week has been a blur. I think it was probably like Wednesday, and I saw a bunch of people who said, "Yeah, but you know, he he could be establishment Republican." Look, if you don't trust a Republican Secretary of State. To enforce the laws, and but it's a very similar story for the attorney general in Arizona, right? These are states that have Republican office holders who have some authority and can do something about election fraud. To say nothing about all the U.S. attorneys, all of whom are appointed by Donald Trump. Not to say nothing of the U.S. of the uh, of the Department of Justice. And I know that apparently the FBI is on the bad guy list now. We don't trust them anymore. Or something. But there are people who can do these sorts of things. You are not impotent Republicans. You can actually go into a courtroom and say, we know fraud is happening. Here is who is doing it, the when, the where, and the why. Lay it all out, and there's a good chance those judges will say, yes, I agree with you. But if you don't have the evidence, stop making the charges. And Trump went out there last night and made these sweeping charges insisting the election was stolen you know what, this is, you know, this is where you build upon you know, the fact that he said that he, he's insisting he won the popular vote and the only reason he, that people say he lost the popular vote in 2016 is because the Mexicans voted and his crowd was bigger at the inauguration. Look, stop it. Put up or shut up. And if you can't generate, like there's so many people who've just convinced themselves into this non falsifiable theory that yes, there's an enormous amount of fraud going on, but the Democrats are so sneaky that they destroy all the evidence and there's no way for us to prove it. Well, if you can't prove it, then you're just sound like a sore loser running around saying, no, no, they cheated, they cheated, but you can't prove it. Put up or shut up, people. That's my I, I'm, I've reached my limit of my patience with this. And, you know, I, I think that uh, this is a lot of sore loser whining uh, among somebody who came up, you know, fought hard, came up just short of the 200 uh, of, you know, in a couple of states, could have gotten to 270, didn't happen, and now they're looking for a scapegoat. Sorry, guys, I'm just not buying it. At least not in the states of Arizona-
1: Uh, Nevada and North Carolina. A couple quick follow ups here, Jim. First of all, uh, we have talked about specific allegations the past couple days. I want to throw a couple of them at you here. Number one, there is a a specific uh, filing, I believe it's in Nevada. That several thousand people, not sure if that's enough to make the difference there, but that several thousand people that no longer live there, uh, maybe they did recently, but they haven't in the last 30 days, uh, voted in this election, and those uh, should not be counted. Uh, there's also been allegations, mainly online, I don't know if about anything formal, about people born in the early 1900s voting in. Wayne County, Michigan. And then some folks have been uh, worried about very lopsided vote dumps. We talked about the one in Michigan overnight from Tuesday into Wednesday, and you talked about the the extra zero in there. But uh, there was one from uh, that 538 mentioned a couple days ago that simply said two more batches of Pennsylvania vote reported 23,277 votes in Philadelphia, all for Biden. And so a lot of uh, and 10A on the right obviously went up over that, uh, that there wasn't a single vote for Trump in that batch. So uh, I know that's a lot to dissect at once, but uh, what do you make of, of those issues? Sure. Yeah. All those things sound suspicious, but don't, don't put it out on Twitter. Get this in
0: the hands of either law enforcement or at least the Trump campaign. Like why is the Trump campaign filing lawsuits about, um, you know, 53 absentee ballots in Savannah when you've got issues like that going on? Why why are you going for the small ball? Why are you getting into fights insisting they're not allowing us to have vote observers and vote challengers in Philadelphia? Then later on in the court hearing, they say, oh, actually, yes, they did. They did allow us. I I don't know if the lawyers are idiots. You know, there's an interesting story that said that Jared Kushner was looking for his Jim Baker type. And they clearly don't have a Jim Baker type. They do not have a figure of stature who can come in and who, who is trusted by both sides, who is not seen as a partisan hack, who can come in here, who knows the law, notice that Rudy Giuliani went there and said, we're going to file a national lawsuit. Where? With who? Over alleging what? you just jump straight to the Supreme Court on this. So I'm seeing a lot of people who I think are trying to build up their brand, people who are trying to build up their, their status and reputation, and they just are not, you know, it's like the, Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. If you want, if you believe the election is being stolen, and you want to stop the election from being stolen, then you need to people you expose the wrongdoing, and you need to stop you know the, the wrongdoing that is going on. No net TV network can do that. Fox News can't stop people from counting. Although apparently they can call Arizona way too early. Um, Twitter cannot stop people from from how they're counting the votes or leaving stuff out or something like that. Only the people who can do who can make a change like this are judges, and that's where you're, that independent judicial branch of government. That's where you need to go. And Greg, I feel like I'm seeing an awful lot of people who are really interested in making a lot of
1: noise, but not actually making change in the one way it matters the most. Obviously, you're correct that uh, the courts are the only place that uh, these complaints would uh, be able to resonate in any way that makes a difference. Um, it's interesting to watch uh, the Democrats, whether in the media or elsewhere, tisk tisk this, because there is uh, obviously, you, know, you, need to, you do need to put up or shut up at some point. But imagine for a second, if this had flipped, and that Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia and Pennsylvania had originally had Biden leads and then slowly but surely as you got to 100% Trump eked past him. How many cities would be in flames right now?
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know there was a good onion headline of um a rioter patiently waiting to see how re- how final vote count turns out. There is that factor. I don't you know, we've got the gun-toting people who are coming around in Arizona and we've got the Angry crowds out there. By the way, remember the story about them putting up the plywood at the, at, the, uh, at the voting center? I think it was in it was either Pennsylvania or Michigan. In Michigan, yeah. Yeah, okay. And they, you know, why were you doing that? Doesn't that look suspicious, et cetera? Well, look, you had, you know, large windows there, and people's ballots had their names and their addresses and all kinds of stuff like that. And they didn't want people who had, you know, lenses that could pick, you know, uh, sharp enough pictures taking pictures of other people's ballots. That's a fair objection. They've got, you've got, you know, Fox News inside the room reporting. You've got poll watchers. You've got poll, you know, ballot challengers inside the room. Uh, you know, that by itself, that set off a lot of suspicion that, aha, they're stealing the election when there was a perfectly reasonable, rational and legal decision to say, hey, you know what? These people need to be in here watching it, but the whole wide world doesn't, particularly when they have cameras, when these people have their personal information up on their ballot.
1: We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations
0: about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at TheBillWaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, And what's next?
1: All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And uh, while we go through the overtime session of the 2020 election aftermath, uh, let's talk about what happened 20 years ago. And not because we're bringing it up, but Tom Friedman is. You know, Tom Friedman, he's never wrong. Uh, Ah. The New York Times columnist, you know, the world is flat. Uh, He thought he had... We could be China for a day. (laughs) guy who uh, had a Middle East peace plan in his drawer and just the world but just do everything that he wanted to do. Everything mm-hmm. would be hunky-dory. Well, Tom Friedman yesterday tweets out this. In the 2000 election, Al Gore took a bullet for the country. Tonight, President Trump put a bullet into the country. Most shameful thing I've ever seen. Brit Hume responds to him and says, in 2000, Al Gore put the country through a 37-day recount process in which he urged the courts to permit recounts only in the places where he thought he could find additional votes for him. If you doubt that, read the book his lawyer, David Boyes wrote about it. Uh, Jim, you and I are old enough to remember that excruciating few weeks uh, very well and how the Florida Supreme Court pretty much did whatever the Gore campaign wanted and even with different standards in different parts of the state, it became a total mess and eventually the US Supreme Court had to step in and of course uh, Democrats forever then accused the Supreme Court of choosing Bush rather than Bush being elected. But uh, what do you make of the revisionist history that uh, Al Gore was this self-sacrificing hero for our constitutional Democratic Republic?
0: Yeah It's interesting where you wonder is that Tom does Tom Friedman genuinely believe that? Is that the way he chose to remember it? Because you know, recognizing the full ramifications is kind of um, it's kind of frightening. Um, or is it one of those things where you know he's just he's, he's he's pressed for time and he just needs a real quick summary of this? The first thing that jumps out about that infamous set of evening, uh, I was at a uh, working at a dot com then, put up you know the the networks call Florida for Bush. They you know they have the little graphics you know. George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the United States. And uh, I update on my website that I'm running it with policy.com for anyone who, you know, have no idea who has the URL now. And uh, it, you know, it's like, oh, go to sleep. It's a late night. But hey, you know what? It's 2 a.m. We have a president. My not yet wife at that point wakes me up and says, what, what are you talking? You know, like, you know, they, they said it's, it's a recount. They said it's not it's not done yet. Core one." And I jump up, and I. This was a time where I wasn't able to update from home. I run into the site. By the way, during that night, Al Gore conceded to George W. Bush. Then, at some point, the, the, the limousine is on its way for him to give his concession speech. And then they get the word, "Oh no, it's actually tightened." You know, maybe it's, you, know, you, you could actually still win this. And Gore calls to rescind his concession to Bush. First of all, Greg, did anybody ever like ever rescind a concession? That's the first one I knew about. Right? I mean, it's one of those, like, you know, if you, you know, the lesson is, don't concede until you know you're certain you're lost. That's the first lesson, you know. Um, But if you do it, and then he sends out, I believe it was William Daly, to, And he says, you know, it's the countess. And he closed his speech. Our campaign continues. And I was always really bothered by that. Because here's the thing. On the evening of November, whatever it was, 2000, the ballots had been cast. Everybody had already decided. There was no more voting to be done. There was no more deciding to be done. Ergo, there was no campaigning to be done. The campaign was over. The count was not. But the campaign, the argument of, you know, going out and making your was supposed to stop, and it didn't. And as you pointed out, Gore went on for a very, very long time uh, throughout, you know, the better part of a month. Nobody really knew, you know, the whole time I remember thinking, nah, you know, Bush is going to win, you know, he's got this. Um, and everybody remembers it as a five-to-four decision, but the really important decision was seven-to-two, not five-to-four. Um, the count was not to continue. That was that part. The five-to-four was that there was no alternative recounting that could be completed by the deadline, but all seven were like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Doing a hand recount in these four counties that we think are full of Gore votes, but doing the usual machine recount in all these other counties that are red and are full of Bush recounts, The seven Supreme Court justices, all agreed. No, nah, you can't do that. That That's, you cannot have one set, one way of counting the votes in one part of the state. You can't have another way of counting the votes in another part of the state. And you can't pick and choose, oh, we're going to do the hand recount, which we think is going to find more votes that might have been undercounted or undervotes or the chads that were only dimpled. And I know some of you are having, fl- you know, traumatic flashbacks as you hear these <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Like it was one of those, you know, now five to four was there's no alternative. Those other two justices thought, well, maybe there's some alternative and that's how you ended up with that. But seven to two was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This way of resolving it by the Florida Supreme Court is not consistent with the constitution. You can't have two different standards for counting votes. You know, that's how history shook out. But yeah, that was, you know, that wasn't good. And oh, by the way, if you listen to pe- you know, to people who were in the Bush campaign, that slowed the transition. The George W. Bush presidency started with not everybody in their place, staffers lined up, all that kind of stuff. And they, you know, there are some Bush staffers who say that was a factor in the run up to 9/11. I don't know if you can say that was the, you know, the definitive factor or something like that, but they were behind schedule in the usual process of setting up an administration because they had to fight that giant recount. So, you know, the idea Al Gore took a First of all, I hate that metaphor, but second thing is that, you know, what I would say, once he realized there was no way that the Supreme Court had decided I think Al Gore gave a decent, um, genuinely conciliatory speech. He made this nice line about, I need to mend some fences figuratively and literally um, back in Tennessee because he'd lost his home state of Tennessee. But the idea that Al Gore was this noble martyr, oh my God, you know, historical revisionism of the First
1: Order from Tom Friedman absolutely right. Because one of the things that we saw at the end of that, uh, you know, the the Democrats were, were furious that there weren't enough counts. I don't know how many counts there had been in that uh, overtime process, but there were plenty of uh, the initial recount. And then uh, they did do recounts in at least some of those counties that that Gore wanted. And it's only when there were differing standards of what pregnant, dimpled, hanging chads, all that nonsense happened. And then everybody said, oh, yeah, well, the court picked Bush. But uh, after uh, all this uh, dust has cleared, we're going to go in there and really count. And we're going to see what really happened. And the media did that. And guess what? Bush was still ahead, but nobody reported on it very, very extensively or put it on the front page because that's not the narrative that they had already set up. So George W. Bush won Florida in 2000. End of story. Amen. All right, Jim, on that point, Happy Friday. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about the Jordan Harbinger Show. You can subscribe at jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe. Also, subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. We'd love to see your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great weekend, and we will be with you again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.